Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sex, poisoning, and attempted murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Power can be intoxicating. It was one of the reasons Ma Anand Sheila got swept up in Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh's movement, but it was love that made her stay, even as she started to lose the power that had seduced her in the first place. Rajneesh Puram began as a beautiful experiment, but by its final year, it had spiraled into an uncontrollable war with Oregon's citizens, and Bhagwan seemed intent on going down with his ship. But Sheila loved her reckless, greedy guru, and she was desperate to save him, even if that meant saving him from himself. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we met Ma Anand Sheila, personal secretary to an Indian guru known as Bhagwan. Under his direction, she led the construction of a city in Oregon for his followers. But as we learned, she and her fellow sannyasins weren't welcomed with open arms. This week, we'll explore Sheila's notorious crimes. By 1985, she was the mastermind behind a vast array of criminal activities, including the worst bioterrorist attack the U.S. has ever seen. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. In 1984, the city of Rajneesh Puram seemed at its height. The leader, Bhagwan, had a cult-like following that spanned the globe, and with thousands of people living there, the commune itself was raking in millions of dollars. On the surface, life was very, very good. Behind the scenes, things were more complicated. For 34-year-old Ma Anand Sheila, the pressure was mounting. As Bhagwan's right-hand woman, she was responsible for running the day-to-day -day of city life. On top of that, she had to deal with the external forces, trying to bring it all crashing down. Sheila was determined to keep her people safe but she was also desperate to protect her own position in the commune. In the summer of 1984, Bhagwan had tasked her with securing two open seats on the Wasco County Commission. He needed more buildings to house all his new followers, but the county had refused to process the permits. So Bhagwan's solution was simply to control the commission itself. In the past, Sheila had never had a problem carrying out her guru's order, but this one was proving more difficult than most, and that frustrated Bhagwan. With every passing day, his disappointment grew. He made it clear that if she didn't figure out a way to get it done, her job, her power, was on the line. 
Sheila had already tried one strategy. Over the summer, she bussed in thousands of homeless people and gave them clothes, housing, and food in exchange for their promise to vote for the Rajneeshis. But in October of 1984, Wasco County scuppered that plan by refusing to register any of the new ranch residents as voters. That left Sheila back at square one, and she was running out of time. The election was just over a month away. She needed to prove to Bhagwan that she could get things done, because he was already starting to look elsewhere for guidance and support. It started with recruiting wealthy followers. Soon enough, there was an entire contingent of people from Los Angeles who moved to the ranch. The Hollywood crowd, as they were known, were led by a beautiful, wealthy movie producer named Ma Prem Hasya. And they brought serious money, donating hundreds of thousands of dollars each for the expansion and upkeep of Rajneesh Puram. At first, Sheila thought the new recruits were just a ridiculous distraction. She was happy enough to take their money, but then she grew resentful. She was the one doing the real work, but Bhagwan had eyes only for his new friends. You see, Bhagwan wasn't just a recluse shut away on his Oregon ranch. He was a man who liked extravagant toys, like the collection of Rolls Royces that he drove around the commune. Sheila knew he had a soft spot for flashy items, but it wasn't a red flag for her. He was different from other gurus in that he embraced materialism. Still, she was careful to treat him with kid gloves. As long as he didn't know what he was missing, he was fine. So she kept him in check by keeping luxury goods out of sight. The problem started when the Hollywood crowd showered Bhagwan with a whole new level of luxury. When the spoiled guru asked Sheila to get him more, she put her foot down. Frankly, the commune didn't have the money to cover the costs. Plus, such purchases could raise questions at the IRS. But Bhagwan didn't like to be told no. So, in defiance of Sheila, the Hollywood crowd, led by Hasya, pitched in to buy him a million-dollar diamond watch. It was enough to earn them entrance into his inner circle. That meant Sheila was pushed farther out. Suddenly, in the fall of 1984, she felt threatened by this new crew, one day around this time, Bhagwan called 34-year-old Sheila to his house and told her he wanted another foundation set up. But unlike his others, this one wouldn't be under Sheila's control, it would be under Hasya's. All of Sheila's worst fears were realized at once. She felt like she was losing control of both her city and her master. In her mind, if Hasya had Bhagwan's attention, then she didn't. Before we continue with Sheila's psychology, I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. Sheila was likely experiencing a phenomenon called zero-sum bias. According to psychologist Daniel Megan, this occurs when a person falsely believes that in any given situation, if one party makes gains, then the other party must lose out. In other words, Sheila saw her rivalry with Hasya as a zero-sum game. They couldn't both have Bhagwan's favor. One of them had to lose for the other to win. 
This wasn't necessarily true. Bhagwan could trust both of them. His attention wasn't so limited that there could only be one. But Sheila was primed to believe that there were always winners and losers. Her work for Bhagwan had only solidified that mentality over the years. For Sheila, the writing on the wall was clear. Her ongoing failure to secure building permits via the Wasco County vote was only making things worse. And she knew that if she didn't come up with a solution fast, then Hasya would be Bhagwan's new right-hand woman. So Sheila focused on the most pressing issue, proving that she was the one Bhagwan should trust. All she had to do was ensure they had enough votes come election day and she wasn't above harming people to do it. Sheila decided that if she couldn't register new voters in her favor, then she would simply take out people from the other side. Her solution? Poison the Wasco County population with salmonella so they couldn't make it to the polls. It was a bizarre and terrifying plan, but Sheila had the means to do it, by this stage, Rajneesh Puram had its own medical laboratory run by a woman named Ma Anand Puja, who was extremely loyal to Sheila. When Sheila told Puja the plan and asked her to order a range of drugs, the other woman didn't blink an eye. But before they put Sheila's plan into action, they needed to make sure the poison worked. So, once Pooja got the drugs, they experimented on their fellow Rajneeshis. One time, they spiked beer and used it to sedate some new recruits who were getting too rowdy. Another time, Sheila had a woman's coffee poisoned just because she caught the attention of Bhagwan. And as we know, Sheila didn't like sharing his affection. Finally, Sheila decided that they had done enough tests. They knew what they were doing. Now, they needed to take their full plan out for a dry run. In October of 1984, a month before the Wasco County election, Sheila ordered her loyal group to go to various restaurants around Wasco's largest city. There, her lieutenants sprinkled the cultured salmonella all over salad bars and buffets. And then, they waited. The plan worked exactly as Sheila had envisioned. In just one day, more than 750 people were poisoned. They flooded into the local hospitals, complaining of nausea, headaches, and diarrhea. Government officials quickly determined that food poisoning was to blame, but no one was sure what had caused the outbreak. They eventually narrowed in on three restaurants, Arlo's, The Portage Inn, and Shakey's. Still, they didn't know what those establishments had in common. At first, the preliminary investigation suggested that raw food had been contaminated by infected food handlers. However, not everyone bought that story. Some people believed the Rajneeshis were responsible. But as the public panicked over the severity of the incident, Sheila was quietly disappointed. It had been the worst bioterrorist attack to ever occur in the United States, but it wasn't nearly as bad as she had intended. The fact of the matter was, Wasco County had a population of around 22,000, which was just too big for Sheila to control by sheer numbers. Making 750 people ill wasn't enough to swing the vote in her favor. And if she couldn't take out more of the population, 
it wouldn't matter. So Sheila decided to forego the plan. She and her fellow Rajneeshis boycotted the election, arguing that the homeless people she had recruited should have been able to vote. They hadn't lost. The other side had cheated. Her moral argument didn't matter. On election day, 93% of Wasco County voters turned up, an unheard of number for the area. The majority of the county had already wanted to prevent Rajneesh Param from expanding, but after the suspicious food poisoning, it seemed the entire community was determined to put a stop to the Rajneeshis' plans. Sheila didn't take kindly to losing. She got even more militant, more ruthless. But now she started lashing out without any clear plan or purpose. She just wanted to hurt these people who were taking everything away from her. During this period, she tried just about everything to cause mayhem. Exact specifics are hard to nail down, but we know that she didn't stop with the food tampering. At one point, she targeted certain county officials and sent them boxes of poisoned chocolates. Luckily, no one was harmed, partly because the poison wasn't effective, but mainly because most people tossed the chocolates. But that wasn't all. There were unconfirmed reports that Sheila was responsible for a fire at the city planning office. And there was even a rumor that she wanted to bomb the courthouse, but that she couldn't get a pilot who would drop the explosive device. In the past, Sheila had always been very deliberate. But as her desperation intensified, she started making mistakes. And this led the government to pay more attention to Rajneesh Puram. State officials had been hesitant to join the fray before, but Sheila's crimes were getting too big to ignore. As investigators closed in, Sheila felt her grip slipping. She was no longer in control, and the stress was getting to her. Her skin seemed washed out, and bags formed under her eyes. She was frazzled, desperate, and afraid. And as she got more and more paranoid, that paranoia spread throughout the commune. Everyone could feel it in the air. But Sheila wasn't done fighting not by a long shot. Up next, Sheila plots to assassinate Oregon's U.S. attorney. Every so often, something so impactful happens, it has the power to capture the attention of a whole country. An event so deadly or dumbfounding, it has no choice but to live on in infamy. Hi, Parcasters. It's Ashley Flowers, and I'm exposing the most sinister cases from the darkest corners of the globe in my new true crime limited series, International Infamy. Every Tuesday, come along as I guide you on a wicked world tour. 15 different countries, 15 infamous crimes. Take a trip to Iceland, where six people confessed to a murder that never actually happened. Journey to Mexico, where a Lucha Libre wrestler moonlights as a serial killer and travel to New Zealand where two friends hatch a deadly plan to become famous. Each episode of International Infamy explores the twists and turns of a notoriously high-profile case, zeroing in on the cultural details which make the crime unique to its location and explaining why it couldn't have happened anywhere else. Follow my new Spotify original from Parcast, International Infamy with Ashley Flowers, and catch a new episode every week. 
Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. After the 1984 food poisoning incident, things got heated for Rajneesh Puram. It wasn't just local citizens who wanted them gone. The United States government was now getting involved. And as 34-year-old Ma Anand Sheila's control diminished, she only grew more desperate. For years, the Immigration and Naturalization Service, or INS, had been suspicious of Bhagwan. But after a thorough investigation, they couldn't find grounds to legally deport him. So the INS handed the case over to Oregon's U.S. attorney, Charles H. Turner. They hoped he might be able to find a way to prosecute Bhagwan and force him to leave the country. Turner took a step back and tried to take a fresh approach to the situation. And then he noticed something odd. One of Bhagwan's main tenets was that marriage was a useless institution that prevented people from finding enlightenment. What was puzzling was the number of Rajneeshis who still got married. It just didn't add up. But Turner realized what was happening. He had on his hands the largest marriage fraud operation the country had ever seen. This is how it worked. Two sannyasins, one American and one foreign, would meet up in a random city in the U.S. There, under their non-sannyasin names, they'd get jobs, rent an apartment together, the whole works. Once they had enough evidence to make it seem like they were in a committed relationship, they'd get married and request a green card for the immigrant. And then, after they got that, they'd both head back to Rajneeshpuram, where they stopped pretending to be a couple and went back to their everyday lives. Once Turner understood the scheme, he just needed to prove that both Sheila and Bhagwan were involved in organizing these arranged marriages. Then he could strike. But as Turner closed in on Sheila in early 1985, he had no idea that she was coming for him. By this time, 35-year-old Sheila was openly talking with her lieutenants about killing people. Her group had already tried poisoning a whole county, and now Sheila was making lists of her enemies. And at the top was Charles Turner. When she realized that Turner was narrowing in on Bhagwan and herself, Sheila decided he needed to be taken out. But like always, Sheila didn't do her own dirty work. Instead, she sent out a group to assassinate him. Sheila waited back at the commune while the hit squad loitered outside Turner's office in Portland. They planned to shoot him as he exited the building. It was shocking how blatant Sheila's lieutenants were being, but it seemed that Sheila's arrogance had trickled down to them. They had no fears about getting caught. It's likely they would have gone through with the assassination, but for whatever reason, Turner didn't come out of the building that evening. They must have missed him. So they just turned around and drove back to the ranch. After that, Sheila put a hold on her plan to murder Turner. She had other concerns to worry about, like Bhagwan's well-being. 
the 52-year-old guru seemed to be losing his grip on reality, which was particularly noticeable when he started ranting about a doomsday scenario. He was incoherent at times, talking about how the world would fall into chaos, but his sannyasins would be safe. In a plan straight from the cult leader's playbook, he wanted to build underground dwellings so that they could hide out and emerge later to live out his vision. Sheila thought it all sounded irrational, but it was getting increasingly harder to debate with Bhagwan. She had a hard enough time staying in his inner circle, and she was worried that if she said the wrong thing, she might lose her place as his confidant for good. It didn't help that he now had others who were close to him, feeding into his delusions and encouraging them. Once again, Ma Prem Hasya, the Hollywood producer, seemed to directly challenge Sheila's position. And when Hasya married Diva Raj, Bhagwan's personal doctor, she suddenly had even more access to Bhagwan than Sheila did. For Sheila, this was the last straw. It seemed that Sheila had lost, but she wasn't done, not yet. Unbeknownst to Bhagwan, she had his room wiretapped. She told the other sannyasins who she enlisted in the scheme that it was for the guru's own good. She was trying to protect him. And to do that, she needed to know what was going on so she could see danger coming. Really, she just wanted to hear everything that was being said to him. In a way, just as her guru was spinning out of control, so was Sheila. According to researcher Maria Sanchi-Soleil and colleagues, stress is made worse when a person feels not only that they lack control, but that they have no way of influencing the situation they're stuck in. In this case, Sheila had no say over how Bhagwan was acting, and that caused her to do desperate things to try and regain her control. So she clung to her wiretapping plan. At first, there was a whole lot of nothing on the tapes, but then one day, Sheila heard something that sent a cold chill down her spine. On the recording, Bhagwan asked his doctor how he could induce death in a dignified, painless way. And then the doctor told him. Deva Raj explained how he would mix three different drugs, and Bhagwan agreed that the strategy sounded acceptable. Sheila had a sinking feeling that the conversation wasn't about Bhagwan trying to kill someone else. He was asking for himself. He wanted to know how he could bring about his own death. Then Bhagwan came to Sheila one day and confirmed her worst fears. He planned on dying during Master's Day, a major Rajneeshi holiday, on July 6, 1985. Sheila was distraught. She didn't know what she would do without her guru. She had devoted her whole life to him. For all of that time, she had deferred to Bhagwan's judgment, believing he knew best. But now, despite his falling opinion of her, Sheila decided that she had to save him from himself. The world needed Bhagwan, and she was going to keep him alive no matter what. So the night before Master's Day, Sheila once again called her lieutenants to her house and gave them their orders. She wanted to kill Diva Raj, Bhagwan's doctor. 
There were shocked murmurs, but Sheila explained that this was the only way to prevent Bhagwan's death. Otherwise, Deva Raj was going to inject the guru with a lethal concoction. Sheila's group quickly got on board. Of course, Sheila didn't plan on murdering Deva Raj personally. She always looked to spread responsibility for her more heinous ploys. This time was no different. She looked out at the group and asked, who will do it? There was a long silence, and then finally, a woman named Shanti Badra volunteered. The next day, 35-year-old Sheila gave Shanti a syringe with a deadly drug cocktail of her own. All Shanti had to do was get close enough to Diva Raj that she could stab him. She just had to do it before Master's Day was over. During an uproarious part of the celebrations, Shanti made her way toward Diva Raj. No one was paying attention to her. They were too busy dancing and having a good time. She knew this was her moment, and she gave Diva Raj a hug. He suspected nothing until he felt the needle plunge into his back. He twisted around, trying to grab the weapon, but Shanti tossed the syringe aside. Another one of Sheila's lieutenants picked it up and whisked away the evidence, while Shanti disappeared into the crowd. Diva Raj stumbled, woozy and dizzy, until he collapsed on the floor. As soon as his fellow sannyasins realized what had happened, he was rushed to the hospital. Sheila waited with bated breath to hear the outcome of the attack. But after a few hours, news trickled back. Diva Raj was going to be fine. Whatever drugs Sheila had used, they weren't strong enough to kill him. Sheila was disappointed. She knew that once Diva Raj was back on the ranch, he was going to be a serious problem. But her plan had been successful in one very important way. She had kept Bhagwan alive, at least for the moment. At this point, Sheila still had hope that she could save Bhagwan, but with each passing day, the rift between them grew wider. He consistently turned to Diva Raj, Hasya, and the rest of the Hollywood crowd instead of Sheila, and the group indulged all his worst tendencies. It wasn't just expensive gifts that the L.A. crowd showered Bhagwan with. They also introduced him to drugs like Valium, and he got hooked. In August 1985, Sheila found out about the drug abuse and confronted her master, just as she had done in the past. She still thought their relationship could withstand the truth, but this time, instead of being receptive to her insights, Bhagwan told her to stay out of it. He didn't need or want her counsel anymore. Sheila left in tears. All she wanted was to protect Bhagwan and his vision. But in his eyes, she was standing in the way of what he wanted. Sheila was at her wit's end. There was too much going on at the ranch that was out of her control, and it seemed like no matter what she did, she just couldn't get it back. She started toying with a truly shocking idea, one that would have seemed inconceivable to her only a few months earlier. But with each passing day, the feeling grew stronger and stronger. She needed to leave Rajneeshpuram. 
Sheila went back and forth debating the merits of the idea. She devoted her life to Bhagwan and his movement. To leave him and the city she'd built felt like a betrayal of the highest order. She knew if she left, she'd be excommunicated. There'd be no coming back. But after two months of thinking, Sheila made her decision. Bhagwan was beyond saving, and she could no longer support what was happening at Rajneesh Puram. Bhagwan was only focused on himself and didn't seem to care for the rest of the commune, and she couldn't stay in a place she wasn't wanted, where she had lost all sense of control. So, on September 13, 1985, 35-year-old Sheila and about 20 other of her closest sannyasins boarded a plane and flew away from the ranch forever. Looking out the plane window, Sheila was distraught as Rajneesh Puram faded away in the distance. She'd been the one to build that city up, to make it what it was. And then there was Bhagwan. She knew she would probably never cross paths with him again, and that broke her heart. However, when Bhagwan heard that Sheila had left, he was completely irate. He wanted her caught and brought down. And while we don't know for sure what was happening in his head, he was likely terrified of what Sheila might do next. She had been privy to everything. She knew too much. If she decided to talk, she could spill the beans on the immigration fraud, the commune's financials, Bhagwan's drug use, everything. While we aren't certain, it's also possible that Bhagwan knew about and approved of the bioterrorist attack and assassination attempts. And if that was the case, Sheila could implicate him in all of it. So then, Bhagwan did something unexpected. He broke his four-year public vow of silence and held a press conference. When Bhagwan spoke to the cameras, he didn't hold anything back. He openly accused Sheila of attempted murder, wiretapping, and food poisoning, but claimed he himself had no knowledge of any of it until after the fact. And then he ended with a warning. If the police didn't take action, his people would. But Bhagwan had no idea what he had just unleashed, because the police had been waiting in the wings for just such a moment, and their focus wasn't Sheila, it was him, and he had just handed them probable cause on a silver platter. Up next, authorities close in on Sheila after she flees to Germany. Now back to the story. Over the course of a few tumultuous months in 1985, 35-year-old Ma Anand Sheila lost Bhagwan's favor. When she realized there was no way for her to regain her status, she decided the only choice she had was to leave Rajneesh Puram forever. So in September, Sheila and her closest allies fled to Germany. Meanwhile, back in Rajneesh Puram, Bhagwan was irate. No one had ever openly defied him before, and certainly not to the degree that Sheila had. He saw it as a personal affront. And it only got worse when Sheila started giving interviews. 
Speaking to the press, Sheila announced that Rajneesh Puram, like all of Bhagwan's religious teachings, was a scam. It was a con she'd presided over, but it was Bhagwan who'd sought to exploit his followers. In turn, Bhagwan held his own press conferences. He denied Sheila's claims and accused her of being under the influence of hard drugs. And then he made it personal. He said that she was just jealous that he had never had sex with her, and that was why she was so angry. Bhagwan could try to deflect all day, but the damage had already been done. Breaking his silence had been a big mistake. By accusing Sheila of attempted murder and bioterrorism on national TV, he practically invited the authorities to Rajneeshpuram. Now they had to investigate his claims. With search warrants in hand, dozens of federal and state police, alongside 50 FBI agents, raided Rajneeshpuram. They searched seven prominent buildings on the ranch for evidence of conspiracy, attempted murder, and assault, amongst many other smaller crimes. At first, there was some cooperation between the remaining high-level sannyasins and the authorities. The Rajneeshis wanted to prove that they were innocent so that their community could continue. But then, Bhagwan told them to stop. He decreed that they weren't to help the officers in any way. But it didn't matter. The investigators already had more than enough. They found proof that Sheila and Bhagwan were organizing wide-scale marriage fraud. They discovered Sheila's wiretaps and seized every tape she had recorded. And finally, they uncovered evidence of the assassination attempt on Oregon's U.S. attorney, Charles Turner. It wasn't looking good for Sheila. Most of the mounting evidence had to do with her crimes. But the truth was, as much as the authorities wanted Sheila, their main focus was Bhagwan. The guru seemed to realize this, so he changed his tune. In a strange twist, he told the world that it was Sheila, not him, who had started his religion. There was a book of Rajneesh Puram which laid out the rules of the movement, but he claimed that Sheila had been the one to write it, not him. According to Bhagwan, he had never been a religious leader, and the people on the ranch weren't his followers. He was simply a man who other people agreed with, and they were all coexisting peacefully in the same place. The problem with that argument was that Bhagwan was only allowed to remain in the United States because of his status as a religious leader. If that wasn't the case, then his visa was void. Meanwhile, Sheila and her crew were hiding out in Germany, both from U.S. authorities and Bhagwan's followers. With the guru making new accusations every day, they had to stay hidden for their safety. That made it hard to survive, though. Sheila and her fellow sannyasins needed money, but that was hard to come by because they couldn't just get normal jobs. Sheila struggled with this new lifestyle. In Rajneeshpuram, she had seemingly limitless power, but now she had nothing, and she didn't know what to do. According to a study from the University of California, San Diego, when a person experiences power, they feel good about themselves and those around them. 
But conversely, when a person feels powerless, they experience mental exhaustion, stress, and helplessness. And research shows that these negative effects are larger than the benefits that come with having power. In other words, as good as Sheila felt when she was in control, she felt exponentially worse when it was all out of her hands. Sheila hated feeling so helpless. On the ranch, she'd been someone who could take care of her people, and she wanted to get that back. To that end, she was willing to do whatever it took to support the group that had followed her to Germany. So, when an opportunity arose with a German magazine called Stern, Sheila jumped at the chance. Anything to gain back some semblance of control over her situation. The journalists wanted an exclusive story with her, and in return, they'd pay a substantial sum of money. Sheila agreed and gave an in-depth interview about her time with Bhagwan. And to make the story even juicier, she posed naked for the photo shoot. After the article was published, Sheila's hideout was compromised. It's not clear how it happened, but suddenly everyone in the world knew where she was, including the U.S. government. And they were closing in. They wanted to extradite her back to the States, but first they needed to make sure their case was airtight. The final piece to their puzzle fell into place when Krishna Deva, Rajneesh Puram's ex-mayor, turned state's witness. In exchange for witness protection, he agreed to spill the beans on everything that had gone down. He'd been close to Sheila and was able to give first-hand accounts of what went on in the movement's inner circle. When Sheila heard that Krishna Deva had turned, she was disgusted. As much as she had problems with Bhagwan, she never, never would have betrayed him by going to the authorities. This might seem hypocritical, but in Sheila's eyes, there was a stark difference between talking to the press and cooperating with the police. The government had tried to destroy their movement for years, and they were still very much the enemy. But because of Krishna Deva's testimony, those same government agencies secured sealed indictments against Bhagwan and seven of his followers, including Sheila. The plan was to make simultaneous arrests of Bhagwan, four Rajneeshis still on the ranch, Sheila, and two of her compatriots in Germany. But on October 28, 1985, before the authorities could strike, Bhagwan boarded a plane and fled Rajneeshpuram. Federal and state officials were notified of Bhagwan's departure almost instantly and tracked him across the country. They quickly deduced that he was likely heading to Bermuda, which was a country where he couldn't be extradited. The news of Bhagwan's flight from Oregon was broadcast across the world. From her apartment in Germany, Sheila watched on the TV as new reports came in. But she had a feeling that this wasn't going to end well. Bhagwan's plane had to refuel somewhere in the U.S. before he could make his final escape. And Sheila knew that the government would do everything they could to stop him from doing that. 
Sure enough, authorities got the jump on Bhagwan. They staked out the airport in Charlotte, North Carolina, where his pilot planned to refuel. When his plane landed, the police surrounded it, guns were drawn, and they shouted for everyone to exit the plane with their hands up. Sheila watched on TV as Bhagwan was handcuffed and walked across the tarmac to a police car. She was too shocked to move. But just then, the doorbell rang. Suddenly, the FBI and German secret police burst through the door and raided her apartment. They had arrest warrants for Sheila and two of her followers for their role in attempting to murder Bhagwan's doctor. They slapped handcuffs on her, then sent Sheila and her co-conspirators to a German prison. As planned, Sheila was extradited back to the States to face charges in Oregon. But although she'd been captured, Sheila maintained a smile for the cameras that followed her everywhere she went. When speaking to investigators, Sheila told her story without any shame, regret, or remorse. There was a total lack of empathy, but she also never tried to cover up or lie about what she'd done. She felt justified in her actions and freely admitted to them. For that reason, her trial was pretty straightforward. She had no intention of bartering her sentence with Bhagwans or turning on her fellow sannyasins. She was willing to take the punishment for her crimes. In July 1986, 36-year-old Sheila pleaded guilty to charges of attempted murder, grievous bodily harm, wiretapping, and immigration fraud. She was sentenced to 20 years in prison, fined $469,000, and ordered to leave the United States upon her release. Bhagwan managed to get off with much less. He also pleaded guilty to immigration fraud charges, but he entered a plea agreement. In exchange for no jail time, he agreed to leave the country immediately. And the prosecution accepted that trade. The disparity between Sheila and Bhagwan's sentences didn't go unnoticed. But where there were mountains of evidence against Sheila, there was very little to tie Bhagwan to the crimes. All the prosecution could get him on were the immigration charges. And in the end, what they really wanted was to deport him. And so he got on a jet and left the States forever. With both Sheila and Bhagwan gone, Rajneesh Puram quickly dissolved. There was no one left to lead the sannyasins, and without someone at the top, they left in droves. As quickly as Rajneesh Puram had come into existence, it disappeared in much the same way. The citizens of Antelope, who had longed for the day the Rajneeshis left, celebrated. They returned the street names and businesses to what they'd been before, but something had irrevocably changed about the place. It would never be quite the same. Bhagwan returned to India, where he still had devoted followers. He continued in much the same manner he always had. He took up another vow of silence and changed his name to Osho. And then in 1990, he passed away. But people continued to practice his teachings. Sheila is one of them. 
To this day, she still believes in Bhagwan and his teachings. Despite everything that happened, she continues to defend and hold him up on a pedestal. She has no remorse for anything she did. Following her trial, Sheila served time in California's Dublin Women's Prison and was released after just three years. As stipulated in her sentencing, Sheila left the U.S. upon her release and moved to Switzerland. There, she settled into a new life and remarried. She shed her sannyasin name and is now just Sheila Bernsteel. Though she didn't leave her past entirely behind her, today she courts India's wealthy, touring to give lectures and spiritual advice. With almost 40 years between her and her crimes, she happily jokes about the things she did in Bhagwan's name, wearing her legacy like a badge of honor. Perhaps that's Sheila's way of holding on to some semblance of the power she once held. For one shining moment, she was in charge, and she doesn't want anyone to forget it. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Sheila Bernsteel, amongst the many sources we used, we found Wild Wild Country, directed by McLean Way and Chapman Way, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Burns, with writing assistance by Joel Callen, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Hi, listeners, it's Ashley Flowers, and here's a quick reminder to check out my new True Crime Limited series, International Infamy. Every Tuesday, I'm taking you across the globe to look at 15 of the most notorious crimes from 15 different countries. Some stories are sure to shock, some may leave you stumped, but all are quite the trip. Follow my new series, International Infamy with Ashley Flowers. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.